apologize, but I'm for reading an apology for the fables of Homer. There's, whereas we like to read Thomas Taylor. We're reading uh, Thomas Taylor, the Platonist, the uh, Selected Writings, in chapter, section 5 of the An Apology for the Fables of Homer. The whole theory of the fable unfolded in which Jupiter, through Themis, excites the gods to contention. That's the chapter. In the next place, since Socrates mentions the judgment of the gods in Homer and the strife to which Jupiter excites the multitude of the gods through Themis, elevating all of them to himself, let us also speak concerning these things. We're trying to... This is largely about uh, Homer as allegory at that uh, he was criticized for uh, the, the evil things the gods were doing or something. And so That Jupiter then is a no-man monad separated from the universe and the multitude of mundane gods and he is able to produce all things from and again convert them to himself has often been said. But since his energy proceeding to the multitude of gods is twofold, one of which converts and the other moves the gods to the providence of inferior natures, the poetry also describes twofold speeches of Jupiter to the gods. Now, dear, what is the twofold speech of Jupiter to the gods if Jupiter is a god? I guess. He speaks to the other gods. According to the first of these, the one and the whole demiogus of the universe is represented as communicating an in unmingled purity to the multitude of the gods and imparting to them powers separate from all division about the world. Hence he orders all the gods to desist from the war and the contrarieties of mundane affairs desist from the war. But according to the second of these speeches, he excites them to the providence of subordinate natures and permits their divided progressions into the universe, that they may not only be contained in one demiurgic intellect, which, as the poet says, none can escape or soaring run beyond, but may energize in the subject of their providential care according to their own characteristics. Hence, Jupiter says to them, Each as your minds incline to either host your succor wind. Does he give them free reign, free providence to do? Each as your mind incline to either host your succor wind. Uh, Strange. What does it mean? The meaning of that? means eat to eat your own. But as the progressions of the gods are not divulged from the demiurgic Monad, Themis first converts them to this monad. But Jove to Themis gives command to call the gods to counsel. That, acting providentially according to the will of their father, they may also energize according to the judgment of Themis. T-H-E-M-I-S. And the poet indeed delivers to us separate speeches of the one demiogus of the universe to the junior gods. Okay, so that's like senior god to the junior gods. But 
Temeiris, Temeris, represents him in one speech converting the multitude of these gods to himself and exciting them to the providence of mortal affairs that they may govern all secondary natures according to justice. But these things in no respect differ from exciting them to war and through Themis converting them to himself. For those who preside over generation govern the war in matter, and those who energize according to justice are suspended from the whole of Themis, of which justice is the daughter, and imitate the one demiurgic intellect, whom it is not lawful to do anything but what is most beautiful, as to may Aeus himself asserts. <laughs> Section number six. What the judgment what? What the judgment of the gods is in the fables of the poet, and what differences of lives it obscurely signifies. This is like an analysis of Homer, right? <laughs> Again, it is not proper to think that the celebrated judgment of the gods, which fables say was accomplished by Paris, was in reality a strife of the gods with each other, under the judgment of a barbarian. But we ought to consider the elections of wives, which Plato delivers in many places, as subsisting under the gods, who are the inspective guardians of souls. And this, indeed, Plato clearly teaches us in the Phaedrus, when he says that a royal life is the gift of Juno, a philosophical life of Jupiter, and an amatory life of Venus. Do we have a philosophic life or an amatory life? Both. Both. Since therefore souls from among a multitude of wives proposed to them from the universe embrace some according to their own judgment and reject others, hence fables, transferring to the gods themselves the peculiarities of wives, assert that not the diversities of living, but the gods that preside over these diversities <laughs> are judged by those that choose them. According to this reasoning, Paris also is said to have been appointed a judge of Minerva, Juno, and Venus, and that the three lives which were proposed to him, he chose the amatory life, and this one, this not with prudence, but a recurring to apparent beauty and pursuing the image of that beauty which is intelligible. So it says Paris chose amatory. Of course, he chose Helen, for he, ooh, that's like choosing in the denial of death the romantic solution. <laughs> he chose the romantic solution. For he who is truly amatory, taking intellect and prudence for his guides, and with these contemplating both true and apparent beauty, is no less the Voltaire of Minerva than of Venus. But he who alone pursues the amatory form of life by itself, and this accompanied with passion, deserts true beauty, but through folly and luxury leaps to the image of beauty, lies about it in a fallen condition, and 
does not attain to the perfection adapted to an amatory character, for he who is truly amatory and studious of Venus is led to divine beauty and despises all that is beautiful in the regions of sense. Can I worship divine beauty in Venus and despise that which is beautiful in the world of the senses? <laughs> So I could worship Venus, uh, or I could be an admirer of Aphrodite in her divine sense. <laughs> Since, however, there are certain demons with the characteristics of Venus who preside over apparent beauty and which subsist in matter, hence he who embraces the image of beauty is said to have Venus cooperating with him in all his undertakings. Does Venus cooperate with you in your artwork? <laughs> I thought the muses might. I don't know the difference. Yeah. Mm. You want to read section seven? What the limitations of the gods are? Okay. Seven. What the mutations of the gods are, which are introduced in fables, and in how many ways, and uh, through what causes they are devised. Since a divine nature is not only beneficent, but likewise imitable, without form, simpler, and always subsisting according to the same, and after the same manner, Socrates very properly considers the following verses of Homer worthy of animadversion. The gods at times, resembling foreign guests, wander over cities in all various forms. Like the animals now in the city, eh? David? Yeah. Like the deer, <laughs> all different forms, who knows? Eh? And again, those respecting pro Proteas and Thetis, in which uh, they are represented as changing their forms and variously appearing. Indeed, uh, that fables of this kind ought not to be heard by those who genuine, genuinely receive a political education is perfectly evident, since it is requisite that the paradigm of a polite of a Polite polity. What is this? Polity. Good question. Polity, which is to be stable, should be imitable, and not obnoxious to all various mutations. But here also it is requisite to collect by reasoning the divine dianotic conceptions of Homer. Though I am not ignorant that the above verses are ascribed to one of the suitors, and that on this account the poet is free from blame, for neither should we think it right to take the opinion of Plato from what is said by Callicles or Thrasymachus, or by any other sophists that are introduced in his writing. But when Parmenides or Socrates or Timaeus or any other of such divine men speaks, then we think that we hear the dogmas of Plato. 
in like manner we should form a judgment of the conceptions of Homer, not from what is said by the suitors of uh, any other depraved character in, this, in his poems, but from what the poet himself, or Nestor of Ulysses, appears to say. Very correct. Polity is just means like the polis, the city of the citizen or po- process of government. That's all it is. It's like policy. Policy. Mm. If anyone, however, is willing to ascribe this dogma concerning the mutation of the gods to Homer himself, he would not be destitute of arguments which accord with all sacred concerns, with the greatest sacrifices and mysteries, and with those appearances of the gods which both in dreams and in visions the rumor of mankind has supernally received. For in all this, the gods extend many forms of themselves and appear passing into many figures, and sometimes an enfigured light of them presents itself to the view. At other times, this light is fashioned in a human form, and at others, again, assumes a different shape. These things also, the disciple of divine origin, pertaining to sacred concerns, delivers. For those, the oracle speak, a similar fire extending itself by leaps through the waves of the air, or an enfigured fire whence a voice runs before, or a light beheld near, every, every way splendid, resounding and convolved but also to behold a horse full of refulgent light, or a boy carried on a swift back of a horse, a boy fiery or clothed with gold, or on the contrary naked, or shooting an arrow, and standing on the back of a horse. And such things as the oracles add after this, not at any time attributing either internal change of variety or limitation to a divine nature, but indicating its various participations. For that which is simply in the gods appears various to those by whom it is seen, they neither, neither being changed nor wishing to deceive, but nature herself giving a determination to the characteristics of the gods according to the measures of the participants. For that which is participated, being one, is variously participated by intellect in rational soul, the fantasy and sense. For the first of these participates in impartibly, the second is an expanded manner, the third accompanied with figure, and the fourth with passivity. Hence, uh, that which is participated in uniform according to the summit of its subsistence, but multiform according to the par- to participation. It is also essentially imitable and firmly established, but at different times appearing various to its participants through the imbecility of their nature. And not only these things follow, but that which is without weight appears heavy to those that are filled with it. The miserable heart by whom I am received cannot bear, bear me, says, 
someone of the gods, uh, Gwen's. Homer is perceiving the truth of these things uh, through divine inspiration, says concerning Minerva, loud crushed the beaten axle with a weight, how strong and dreadful was the power it bore. What's a beaten axle? Beaten. Beaten. The beaten axle. How strong and dreadful was the power it bore. Though here it may be said, how can that which is without weight be the cause of weight? But such as is the participant, such necessity must uh, that which is participated appear. Mm. Whether therefore some of the gods have appeared similar to guests uh, or have been seen in some other form, it is not proper to attribute the apparent mutation to them. But we should say that uh, the fantasy is varied in the different recipients. And this is one way in which the poetry of Homer delivers multiform mutations of imitable natures. Yeah, that's perfect. And the footnotes here, Chaldean Oracle. Chaldean Oracle. See my collection of those oracles in the third volume of the monthly magazine. Mm. Hence also Homer, Iliad, says, Chalepi vethei fenaste energies. Oh, oh, empowering are the gods when clearly seen. Like overpowering, probably. A divine nature must necessarily produce the sensation of weight in the body by which it is received from its overpowering energy. For body lies like non-entity before such a nature and fails and dies away as it were under its influence. Those were footnotes. Do you like to read now? Yeah, what did you but read? We can start from here. Uh, but there is another way when a divine nature itself which is all-powerful and full of all various forms, extends various spectacles to those that behold it. For then, according to the variety of powers which it possesses, it is said to be changed into many forms, at different, at different times extending different powers, always indeed energizing according to all its powers, but perpetually appearing various to the transitive intellections of souls, through the multitude which it comprehends. According to this mode, Proteus also is said to change his proper form to those that behold it, perpetually exhibiting a different appearance. For though he is subordinate to the first gods, an immortal indeed, but not a god, the minister of Neptune, but not allotted to, not allotted a leading dignity, yet he is a certain angelic intellect belonging to the series of Neptune, possessing and comprehending in him all the forms of generated natures. Idothria, 
I-D-O-T-H-E-A, has the first arrangement under him, she being a certain Dima, dear. Diamonical soul, conjoined to Proteus as her proper divine intellect in connecting her intellections with her intellectible forms, another number of rational and perpetual souls follows, which the fable denominates Phoque, P-H-O-C-A-E, Phoque. Hence Proteus is represented okay. as numbering these. Okay. Okay. As numbering these poetry, indicating by this the perpetuity, perpetuity of their nature for the multitude of things which are generated and perishes indefinite. Partial souls, therefore, beholding Proteus, who is an intellect possessing many powers and full of forms, whilst at different times they convert themselves to the different forms which he contains, fancy that the transition of their own intellections is a mutation of the intelligible objects. Hence to those that retain him he appears to become all things. Quote, water and fire divine, and all that creeps on earth. For such forms as he possesses and comprehends, or rather such as he perpetually is, such does he appear to become when these forms are considered separately through the divisible conception of those that behold them. In the fourth place, therefore, we say that the gods appear to be changed when the same divinity Divinity proceeds according to different orders and subsides as far as to the last of things, multiplying himself according to number and descending into subject distinctions. For then again fables say that the divinity which supernally proceeds into this form is changed to that in which it makes its progression. Thus they say that Minerva was assimilated to mentor Mercury to the bird called the seagull, and Apollo to a hawk, indicating by this their more demonical orders, into which they proceed from those of a superior rank. Hence, when they describe the divine advents of the gods, they endeavor to preserve them formless and unfigured. Thus, when Minerva appears to Achilles, and becomes visible to him alone, the whole camp being present there. Homer does not even fabulously ascribe any form and figure to the goddess, but only says that she was present, without expressing the manner in which she was present. But when they indicate, but when they intend to signify angelic appearances, they introduce the gods under various forms. But these such as are total, as for instance a human form, or one common to man or woman, or woman indefinitely. For thus again Neptune and Minerva were present with Achilles. Neptune and Pallas haste to his relief, and thus in human form address the chief. Lastly, when they relate to Maiaco, Advents, and they do not think it improper to describe their mutations into individuals and partial natures, whether into particular man or other animals. For the last of these genera that are the perpetual attendants of the gods are manifested by these figures. 
And here we may see how particulars of this kind are devised according to the order of things. For that which is simple is adapted to a divine nature, that which is universal to an angelic, and the rational nature to both these. And that which is partial and irrational accords with the demiacal nature, for a life of this kind is connected with the demiacal order, and thus much concerning the modes according to which the Homeric fables devise mutations of things immutable and introduce various forms to uniform natures. You had enough for today? <laughs> you want to keep reading? We have to make progress if we're going to climb to Mount Parnassus and reach it all the way to Olympus. Uh -huh. We're going to keep going all the way to Mount Olympus. Uh -huh. Hmm... Well, uh, all right, I have to exercise my lung capacity and my voice. Uh, section number eight, concerning the dream sent to Agamemnon, which appears to accuse the gods of falsehood, and how it may be shown that a divine nature is void of falsehood. Uh, so he's trying to prove it wasn't false. Mm -hmm. hmm. Let's see what he says. <laughs> He's defending the gods. <laughs> Do you think that we should defend the gods in Homer? Mm -hmm. We should. Mm -hmm. Why do you offend them? Don't you think they created a lot of trouble? Mm -hmm. It now remains that we speak concerning the dream sent by Jupiter to Agamemnon for Socrates at the end of his theological types reprobates this because the whole of a divine and demiacal nature is without falsehood, as he collects by demonstrative arguments. But Homer says that Agamemnon was deceived through this dream. Though is it not absurd, if this dream is from Jupiter, according to the assertion of the poet, that this alone nearly or of all the particulars which are mentioned as deriving their origin from Jupiter, should be attended with fraud. Don't you think we should have read Homer prior to reading this? I think so. <laughs> you did. I'm not quite uh, up to speed on it. <laughs> In answer to this objection, we may say what is usually asserted by most of the interpreters, that the fallacy had its subsistence in the fantasy of Agamemnon, for Jupiter, in his speech to the dream, and the dream again in its address to Agamemnon, evidently indicate that it would be requisite to call together all the army, and to attack the enemy with all his forces, for this is the meaning of the word, pay <laughs> foe God. Pay, bo, bo, but I can't say it. Parts with a pie. Which is used in both the speeches, but Agamemnon, not understanding the mandate, neglected the greatest part of his army, and engaging in battle without the aid of Achilles, was frustrated in his expectations, though his unskillfulness in judging of, through his unskillfulness in judging of divine divisions divine visions. 
so that Jupiter is not the cause of the deception, but he who did not properly understand the mandates of Jupiter. We, we it's not Jupiter's fault. <laughs> Achilles, when his friend was killed from the Trojans, uh, the brother of Paris, I forgot his name now, he, he was so angry that he wanted to fight. And, uh, uh, and actually, he demanded something. I don't know what he demanded. Mm. And uh, then, but the Greeks, uh, Agamemnon, they insisted on keep fighting with, uh, with the Trojans. Uh huh. Without Achilles. Without Achilles. They, they yeah. were very badly hurt. Yeah, mm. from the Trojans during that time, and Achilles went back to. Oh. So that's what uh, they. All right. To, so. He should fight without all of his army, without Achilles. Jupiter recommended that. It seems that's what we're reading. We shall also have the solution given by our preceptor, Sirianus, which both accedes to the meaning of Homer and the truth of things. For if Jupiter is represented as providing for the honor of the hero Achilles and consulting how he may destroy the greatest number of the Greeks, is it not necessary that he must previously comprehend in himself the cause of the deception? For if Achilles had been associated with the army, the Greeks would not have been destroyed, nor would they have been punished for their unjust conduct towards him. It is better, therefore, to say that the deception was from divinity for the good of the deceived. For good is better than truth. Hmm. And among the gods, the indeed, they are conjoined with each other, for neither is intellect without divinity, nor divinity without an intellectual Actually, essence. Achilles and his friend mm. Patroclus, he, ah. he held back his friend Patroclus also from fighting. Mm. I don't recall the reason, though. But then his friend Patroclus, although they were very close friends, mm. he at one point he couldn't take it, and he told him he's going back to fight because the Greeks were losing a lot. And then he was killed, and then mm. Achilles decided to go back and fight uh, and mm. revenge the death of his friend. Mm -hmm. But in their participations, they are often separated, and the good is produced through falsehood, and the truth is frustrated of good. Hence, also, Socrates himself, when he is framing laws for the guardians of his republic, Orders falsehood to be employed through the opinion of the stupid, who are not otherwise able to obtain the good, which is adopted to their condition. <laughs> if the... <laughs> what? That's interesting. <laughs> you see, sometimes you use falsehood. Uh, uh, mm. if you, if that's the only way to change the situation from the common good. If therefore it is said that divinity benefits through some through truth and others through falsehood and at the same time leads all of them to good, it is by no means wonderful. For of generated nature some subsist without matter, but others with matter, in which fallacy is inherent. And rather matter is true fallacy itself, so that in the providence of souls, if they are, as we have said, variously benefited by divinity, some immateriality through truth, but others materially through falsehood. Such providential energy will be adapted to the nature of the gods. 
But if it be requisite, this also may be asserted that deception and falsehood are generated in the participant, and that this takes place according to the will of divinity, and that he who has acted erroneously may through the deception become more worthy, just as that which is material is generated into these lower regions, but subsist according to demiurgic providence that there may be generation and corruption in order to the completion of the universe. Divinity, therefore, does not deceive, but he who is deceived is deceived by himself. And this takes place according to the will of divinity for the good of him who sustains the deception. For God making immortality, immateriality, that which is generated is generated materially, and he energizing impartably that which proceeds from this energy, receives his completion partably, and he signifying intellectually falsehood obtains a shadowy subsistence in the being that receives what is signified. But the divine poet himself manifests that truth dwelling with the gods. Deception is generated from the opinion of the recipients when he makes Jupiter commanding the dream say, All that I order tell with perfect truth. But how then is there falsehood and divinity according to Homer? Question mark. And how is divinity the cause of deception? Question mark. Unless it should be said, he is the cause in such a manner as that neither is the shadowy substance of deception in these lower regions contrary to his will. But the habit of youth is incapable of distinguishing incompetent contemplating how holes remaining void of evil in the natures which receive them divisibly evil appears how natures more excellent than ours not deceiving we are often deceived and how when deceived we suffer this according to the will of providence hence socrates is not willing that young men should hear things of this kind as being incapable of forming properly distinct opinions of things You're in charge of comment. Very interesting. I'm going to stop because I ran out of breath. Uh -huh. <coughs> Plus, I'm not capable of forming properly distinct opinions of things, so I'm not. I may be deceived. I would be since I don't properly don't properly understand this. I shouldn't read on because I would deceive the listeners. <laughs> so I'm going to stop here. You read. <laughs> okay, this is section uh, nine. Tough reading. What was that Greek thing that you couldn't read that list? Uh, there's a Greek word over there somewhere. That one probably. Pansi, pansi, pansi. This is used to both the species. Used to both the species. Pansi, I can't really explain it. Read number nine. 
a common reading. apology both for the Homeric and Platonic fables, in which they speak of the judgments in haves of souls and the different allotments which they receive on departing from their bodies according to the idioms of the life in the body. Having then discussed these things, let us examine what is written in the third book of the Republic, and prior to other things, and what the poet either himself asserts or introduces another asserting mythologically concerning Hades. And let us consider whether they contain anything of truth in accord with the narrations of Plato. Of Plato. What then, are, what then are we to understand when the poet represents Achilles, Achilles as preferring servitude in the present life to the possession of everything in Hades? What is the meaning of uh, those dreadful habitations which are odious to the gods, of the image uh, and the soul of, of sages uh, wandering without intellect? Of, lives compared uh, to such those of the lamentations of soul passing thither, of their being assimilated to buds of smoke, uh, a crushing noise, and such like particulars which the poems of Homer contain. What likewise are the rivers in Hades and those appellations which are the most tragical of these, Socrates, reprobates, but at the same time adds what is common in all fables, that uh, they contribute to something else. But we, say he, are afraid of our guardians, lest from these terrible relations they should think death to be dreadful. However, that Socrates himself in many places uses names and Enigmas of this kind is obvious to everyone, of that I may omit the rivers mentioned in the Phaedro, the wandering of souls, the anxieties, the three roads, the punishments, the being carried in rivers, the lamentations, the exclamations there, and the supplications of injurers to the injured, of all which Plato says, hey, this is full. Though these things should be omitted, yet does not what we find written at the end of the Republic accord with the intention of the Homeric poetry, viz. the billowing mouth, Tartarus, fiery demons, the tearing off the flesh of the tyrant Aridaeus, and souls full of dust and filth, for what is there in this uh, which falls short uh, of the tragical in the extreme, so that, for the same reason, these also are to be rejected? Oh, the Homeric doctrine is not to be reprehended. In defense of both, therefore, whether <coughs> some Epicurean or any other endeavors to accuse such like fables, we say that the habits of souls liberated from the body are different, and the places in the universe are multiform, into which they are introduced. Of these, 
convulsions, some are so separated from mortal instruments as neither to have any habitude to things uh, of, of worse condition, nor to be filled with uh, the tumult which they contain and material inanity. The vehicles of such are necessary, necessarily pure and luciform, not dis disturbed by material vapors, not, not thickened by terrestrial nature, but others who are not yet perfectly purified by philosophy, but are drawn down to an affection towards the testactus body, testaceous body, and pursue a life conjoined with this. This exhibits such like vehicles suspended from their essence to those who are capable of beholding them, this uh, shadowy material drawing downwards by their weight and attracting much of a mortal condition. Hence, Socrates in the Phaedro says that such souls rolling about sepulchres exhibit shadowy phantasms, and the poet relates that they are impelled along similar to shadows. Further still of those souls which yet embrace uh, a corporeal life, uh, of those souls which um, yet embrace a corporeal life, there are many differences. For some live in more practical life and uh, not yet deserting, deserting a life of this kind, embrace an organ adapted to practical energies from which when they are separated they are indignant, indignant, as was the case with the soul of Proclus, soul of Patroclus, which a living youth and manhood waited its fate, and when in hate they still desired an association with this organ, as did the soul of Achilles, because he preferred a life on earth to a separate life, according to which he has not able to energize, but uh, very much excelled uh, in an active life. Uh, others again, through the infelicity of their condition, eagerly embrace the testaceous body and think that uh, the life conjoined with it uh, differs in no respect from the proper life of the soul. Such as this, the divine poetry of Homer assimilates to bats, as looking to, to that which is dark in the universe uh, and its very extremity, and which may be denominated a stupendous cavern, and as having the winged nature of the soul, gross and terrestrial. It is therefore wonderful that Achilles, who possessed practical virtue, should desire a life in conjunction with body, and which was capable of being subservient to his actions. For Hercules, being purified through the telestic science and partaking of undefiled fruits, obtained a perfect restoration among the gods, whence the poet says of him, he with the mortal god delighted lives and beauty was heavy 
crowns his joys. There's a footnote here. Heroes are divided into two kinds, those that energize according to practical and those that energize according to intellectual virtue. Achilles was a hero of the former class and Hercules of the later. Of the latter. For an ample, ample account of, her of the characteristics of these two kinds, see my Parsanias uh, volume. But Achilles, since he embraces rectitude in practical affairs and the present life, pursues also and desires an instrument adapted to this life. Plato, Plato himself, therefore, says, also says that souls, according to the manners to which they have been accustomed, make choice of secondary lives. Is not this likewise worthy of admiration in the divine tradition of Homer? I mean the separation of the soul from its image and intellect from the soul. Also that the soul is said to use the image, but that intellect is more divine and both than both these. And again, that the image of the soul may, in a certain respect, be known while yet detained in the body, and that the soul takes care of, of and providentially attends to the testaceous body, and when this is not affect, affected, desires its accomplishments. But that intellect is incomprehensible by our fantastic and figured motions. Hence Achilles, on beholding Patroclus speaking concerning the burial of his body, was led to believe that the soul and its image were in hate, but that intellect was not there, nor prudence by which these are used. For the energies of the irrational life hastened to adapt this position but could not credit the reception of the intellectual soul in Hades from the visions of dreams. Does it not also most perfectly accord with things themselves to say that the multitude of souls depart from their bodies lamenting and are divorced from them with difficulty through the alluring life and many pleasures which they enjoy in them. For every corporeal pleasure, as Socrates says in the Phaedo, as if armed with a nail, fastens the souls to the body. And such souls, the footnote I'm going to read, the irrational part of the soul is the image of the rational, in the same manner as the irrational, the rational soul is the image of the intellect. Body also is the image of the irrational soul, and matter of the last of things is the image of the body, the image of body. So we stop that uh, with a nail fastened the soul to the body, and such souls, after deserting their bodies, use shadowy vehicles which are disturbed by the ponderous and terrene vapors of the sirens and utter an uncertain voice and a material sound which the Homeric poetry denominates uh, a crossing noise. 
orgasm as the instruments of ascending souls emit a harmonious sound and appear to possess an elegant and well-measured motion, so the sounds of more irrational sound descending under the earth is similar to the crashing noise bearing an image of an appetitive and fantastic life alone. Nor must we think that the places in Hades and the tribunals under the earth and the rivers which both Homer and Plato teach us are there are merely fabulous prodigies, but as many and all various places are assigned to souls ascending to the heavens according to the allotments which are there. In like manner, it is proper to believe that places under the earth are prepared for those souls that still require punishment and purification. These places, as they contain the various defluxions of the elements of the earth, are called by poets rivers and streams. They likewise contain different orders of presiding demons, some of whom are of the avenging orders of punishing, orders of purifying, and lastly, orders of a judicial characteristic. But if the Homeric poetry calls these places horrid and, and dark and odious to the gods, neither is it proper to condemn it for this. For souls are terrified through the variety and fantasy of the presiding demons which are there. Oh God. Are you it's done? It's difficult to read all those horrible places. Are you done there? God, I'm here. I'll have to read up to here. Eh? Yeah. The infernal region, likewise, is extended according to all various allotments adapted to the different habits of those that descend by there. It is also most remote from the gods as being the extremity of the universe eh? and as possessing much of material disorder and never enjoying the splendor of the solar rays and those much concerning those verses which Socrates thinks should be obliterated should by no means be heard by those whom, the, whom he educates. For through this, says he, the love of the soul for the body would be increased, and a separation from it will appear to be, of all things, most dreadful. In the form not here, for Agmona, here is Agmona. Right. Instead of reading the latter part of this sentence and the beginning of the next, uh, as it is erroneously printed in the original, Heromenon, yeah. <coughs> what do you, you sum up with? What is it you just read that you sum up? What it say? I'm leaving it here now. What did it say? Oh, it describes, you know, the... What did you learn? Uh, under the punishment mm. of the souls. Uh. Punishment? Mm. Punishment of the souls. Uh-oh. I didn't know I would read that all that. You read that? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> mm. There are a lot going on. He mm. a lot about that. Okay. We're going to stop. Um, yeah. yeah. But do you have subtitles there? Yeah.